is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering a range of conversations from our coverage during the International Litter Congress 2022 and from this week's Surfing Nash wrap-up episode. This conversation comes from episode 32. It centers around two themes. First, the value of diagnostic testing as motivator and treatment driver. Michelle Long and Louise Campbell discuss the presentation in the meeting that demonstrates that a single VCTE exam can drive a change in behavior lasting at least six months in patients with fatty liver disease or, for that matter, in obese patients and others who consume too much alcohol who do not yet have fatty liver disease. Second, the importance of creating quality metrics around early use of FIB4 and integration into electronic health records as a pivotal step to driving widespread screening and increased appreciation of the importance of treating fatty liver disease. ILC 2022 covered a vast array of issues around drug development, non-invasive testing, patient screening and treatment, and the entire process of provider-patient communications. On each topic, there were conversations that can enlighten every fatty liver stakeholder and promise a more optimistic future for us all. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Louise Campbell. Michelle, have you particularly found a session that you've enjoyed? Michelle Long. I've been going to a lot of different sessions and taking it all in. I agree with Zobert. There's just been a lot of really interesting papers presented. That was by Maya Thiel. I was looking at the consequences of a screening program using FiberScan in the Danish population, which I thought was really interesting and sort of echoed sort of a lot of clinical observations that I've had as well. Basically, this paper, they offered screening to a general population through a, a random mailings for people that, you know, and they, the random mailings to people who had risk factors for fatty liver disease or alcohol use as well. So it was not just for fatty liver disease, but it was also for alcohol use or alcohol-related liver disease. And then they offered them a liver screen and they looked at their follow-up based on surveys, even in a subgroup up to two years out from the screen, and they looked at changes in behavior. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of challenges with doing a project like this, which I thought were very well described, but having that hands on the patient and giving them that information about the status of the liver, in particular, not only for people who had increased liver stiffness or increased liver fat, but even those that didn't, it really did result in alterations in behavior to adopting more health healthy behaviors, um, alcohol use behavior, and physical activity. I thought that was really interesting and definitely something that I see kind of using FiberScan as a part of that motivational interview. And it was nice to see that shown in a systematic way. I think that was presented in the alcohol section, not the fatty liver section. And I think there was a cohort of 1,500 patients in the alcohol and 1,473 or something like that in the NAFLs. But the interesting thing was that was one intervention and how much it changed people's behavior six months down the line. My take home for that was if we do that with everybody, we can pick out the easy ones to turn around. We can then do it in three months time, pick up the next set. We can then pick up the next set and we will then be delivering who definitely will need the drugs and who doesn't need the drugs because they just need that little bit more input. So I thought that was a fascinating piece because obviously I talk a lot about the power of the intervention. Fibroscan for me is not just a diagnostic, it's actually a potential treatment for a lot of people. And that was the strength of that, that she she sort of showed. Today, that was followed up in the nurses' session by just measurement of CAP in people and how it turns around people and what the effect was five years after, which I'll come back to a little bit later. Robert Mitchell Fain. Yeah, I think the key is about raising awareness about this disease. And as a part of that is to really 
intervene in what I sort of call behavior change that becomes sustainable. So you certainly can use one of these tests to motivate folks to actually do something about, about their disease. We historically have used actually a liver biopsy to do that, either a threat of a liver biopsy or the finding of a liver biopsy. So that was actually quite effective for some patients when you say, well, if you don't uh, lose this amount of weight in the next six months, uh, you're going to have a liver biopsy. That was effective. So I think that actually the team is, is really a, an interesting observation that that may be a way to utilize some of these non-invasive tests. In general, everything is focusing on one sort of area. What are going to be the easy tools to use to risk stratify patients, to identify patients, to make it easy for primary care providers to then use those tests? And there is actually a study that Quentin Anstey presented yesterday that looked at FIP4 in a primary care setting from the from the United Kingdom, showing that FIP4 can actually predict prognosis, mortality, as well as cardiovascular event and liver event. Why is that important? Well, it's important. It's nothing novel and new, but it actually is confirmatory in different populations. So there is a huge VA study that shows FIP4 is very good in terms of predicting outcomes. We have published from enhanced data set from population-based data that FIP4 can predict outcomes. There is tertiary care data from different academic centers that suggest that folk can predict outcomes. This was from a primary care setting. This is now putting a portfolio together about the use and utility of FIP4 at the front line in the primary care setting. And I actually think that FIP4 should become a part of electronic health record of uh, a lot of health systems, and it should be a quality indicator. And, and in fact, we should push it, now we have the evidence to recommend to the Medicare that it should be similar to a creatinine used for patients with diabetes. You have to do it, and if you don't do it, you are actually missing a, a quality indicator. Same thing. This is a liver complication of diabetes, and a FIP4 should be done. Easily actually adaptable to electronic high health record, and then making sure that those that are at quote-unquote higher risk FIP4s to get uh, linked to the right care. I think this this is where, where we need to sort of move that. That will do two things. It will push the providers to become more aware and do something about this disease, but it also actually motivates, similar to a transgenic astrography, motivate patients who have, quote unquote, a high FIP4 score to do the, the lifestyle intervention and to do the things that we are asking them to do, but we are just telling them that they have heart liver disease and they are not paying attention. So what? I have some heart and liver. Well, if you tell them that you have this disease that has this score that is high, that has been associated with bad outcome, including mortality, you know, from liver or heart and other things, then you get patients' attention. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I particularly agree with the fact that we need to have this as part of the quality indications. You know, right now, a lot of health systems have a lot of roadblocks in terms of incorporating the FIB4 into the healthcare EHR system. And there's really, and at least my experience has been in talking to others as well, that there's just a lack of motivation to incorporate these types of tools, despite the fact that they are helpful. But I think if they're linked to a, a quality measure, in particular for patients with diabetes, then I think we'll see a lot of those barriers decrease and it'll be a lot easier for providers. I couldn't agree more. I'm mindful that one of the real seminal events in the uptake of statins was when Quest and LabCorp changed their coding criteria so that 
it to get a red mark that your cholesterol was too high on a lab test wasn't like everything else, which is two standard deviations from the mean, but was in fact a fixed level that was too high. All of a sudden, 20, 25, 30% of a doctor's practice was being told it was too high. The doctor had to react differently and patients were getting feedback that something was wrong, whereas previously that wasn't the feedback they were getting. So the other thing I like that you said about FIB4 is that in the context of EHR is Louise points out and probably has, while I was moving the computer on this podcast, that one of the things she really likes about FibroScan is that the time to reaction is immediate, right? You go to the doctor's office, you get scanned. You don't have to wait for results to come back. It's right in front of you. And there are now devices that compete with FibroScan where you literally can look at your liver on the screen while they're doing it. With a blood test, you wait a week and then you get a phone call. And the momentum of the moment, Zobear was talking before about momentum in one sense, the momentum of that moment is lost. But if you just go see the doctor, doctor pulls up your chart and says, well, it says here, you know, you got a red mark on fatty liver and show on the screen. Now the doctor has to be in that moment and the patient gets that kind of immediate feedback. So I just think it's going to be a lot more powerful and motivating. Well, what I think the point of care tests, like a fiber scan or a tangent elastography or even shear wave elastography, would be powerful. Of course, the challenge is that a primary care is not going to do it. Our challenge is going to be in the primary care setting. What we see as hepatologists, as gastroenterologists, is the tip of the iceberg, and we need to actually address the entire iceberg. Now, there is a point of care test that is free, uh, and, and that's called FIB4. So I think that ultimately what's going to happen is that you have four primary care physicians who are so busy, you need to make this very simple with a red flag that's not going to take one minute of their time that they will give that number in their medical record. I'm actually conducting and launch a, a prospective study in the primary care and, and endocrinology setting where we are trying to do risk stratification. And we have screened 15,000 patients through electronic heart record. The problem we're facing right now is that a, a small percentage of these patients even have a liver enzyme test done in the past three years so that you can calculate a fit for. So if I can convince them that this is an important disease and all you have to do is to get a FIB4, a, a, a liver enzyme test done and then FIB4 would automatically would be calculated, then I think what they don't want to do is to get stuck. We're trying to figure out now is transgenic elastography score of 8 kilopascal versus 10 kilopascal, what does that mean? I think once you get to transgenic elastography and to um, an ALF test for example, a serum test, then that becomes either a very sophisticated primary care with an interest and in, in disease, an endocrinologist with an interest in fatigue disease, or it's going to have to come to gastroenterologists and pathologists. It should be that way. Because once you start having indication of coronary artery disease, the management of that, actually, yes, you can do certain things by primary care with statins and this and that. But there is going to be a, sort of the other part of the muscle multidisciplinary team, which includes a cardiologist or a kidney and a, um, and, you know, a nephrologist. So that's sort of where we're going. The only other point that I'm making is that this disease is very different from what we hepatologists have been used to, which is that liver disease, your primary care is referring to you, it's a virus, you're going to have to cure it, and then I don't want to see that patient unless things are fine. This is a disease that we have to manage with care pathways that is going to be uh, delivered to a multidisciplinary team, and hepatologists must become 
very comfortable to work very closely with the diabetologist, with the cardiologist, with the nephrologist, with the diet and nutrition experts to bring that team around the patient and really deliver patient-centered care. I agree with that. And I think that uh, what you've hit on there is really important because I've been to a few sessions where they've talked about primary care now against what it was before the pandemic. Whereas they were seeing 18% of virtual appointments or telephone calls, it's now over 50%. So their whole demographic and the workload has changed drastically in primary care. I'd love to see Fibroscan in primary care because for one reason, we cannot deal with it in hepatology. We send about 90% back. That is blocking the pathway for the real patients who we need to find in there. And can we screen that out with FIB4 first with a serial test or there's, a I think, an oral or a, an abstract that's about questioning FIB4, particularly in diabetes, as you get a higher BMI, it's less intuitive and to use Fibroscan first. So there's all sorts of discussions here and it's great to see so many non-invasive tests being discussed in the posters because pre-pandemic, that wasn't the case. It was all biopsy-centered. We've got to write those pathways. We've got to make them clear to follow. There's got to be a mix of how do we get the right patients to hepatology because liver disease has increased with increased alcohol, with increased diet during the pandemic, but they're buried in the amount of overwhelming referrals we're going to be receiving. So we've got to triage them somewhere other than secondary and special is care, I suppose. And I think that absolutely we've got to be doing FIB4 as a metric. There was a GP who also said on the podcast here and, and in other sessions, GPs are incentivized and they look for what they're incentivized for. Making that an incentive is definitely the right way to write it. So I think when you look at the purpose of a test in different setting, in the primary care setting, you have to have a high negative predictive value to exclude advanced fibrosis. And FIB4 has as good as any others. In the subspecialty sort of setting, you need to have a higher positive predictive value. And that's been what's missing. And, and the positive predictive value can only really be maximized by sequential tests, FIB4 followed by an alpha or by MRE or by, you know, transandlastrography. I think that's where we need to sort of figure out. I'm I'm skeptical. I, I'll just be very open that putting a transandlastrography machine in every general practitioner office would be useful or used. First of all, there is not enough machines that will go out there. At, at, in, in Northern Virginia, which is right outside Washington, D.C., there are just a few transelastographies available. So the dissemination of this technology to be in every primary care practice is just not there. And there is, as you know, there is going to be some learning and some some familiarity that I just don't think that primary care physicians in the United States will have the time or the interest to do that. So the alternative in terms of relatively good negative predictive value is a fit for. You, they can get it. It can, it can come in their electronic health record. It can flag it as red or as green or as a yellow. And then you can send the green one in from the UK study. It was, you know, 80% of patients were green and, and they didn't have to worry about them. It's only that 20% that could potentially go to the next step. And that next step should be with the right expert. And it, whomever that their expert is should have the ability to do it effectively and then really act on it. So, Jorn, what do you think? Jorn Schattenberg. You know, we've been a little hamstrung here with the uh, technology, but I fully agree with Zobair and Michelle. And I think Zobair made a number
number of uh, important statements that I'd like to just reflect on or go back to and revisit it. Because if Stephen was on this podcast, he would say, keep it simple, stupid. And that's where FIB4 kicks in, okay? I'm aligned with Zobair, and I was also going to highlight Quentin Onstey's paper. So thanks for <laughs> pulling that out, Zobair. I think it's a great way to show that we're talking about a high-risk population. And also something importantly he mentioned is, you know, if you're talking about a low prevalence condition, so the pretest probability of a disease is important. If you're talking about screening the general population with FIB4, you're never going to get a high predictive, positive predictive value. And we had a great easel ASAD board session this morning discussing the aspects of one or many fatty liver diseases. And it was great faculty. We had uh, Hannes Hackstrom there, uh, Reluca Pei from France, and uh, Dina Tiniakos. And it kind of went down the same route. We agreed, I think, that FIB4 is the test to, to identify at-risk patients. And in the discussion of who we might miss, I think age came out as an important factor. And if we miss younger patients, I think we have ample time to maybe pick them up in their journey of developing the slowly progressive disease. And we need that data. And I'll be interested to see what Zobair is going to produce with his prospective study there. We need that data to see who is actually not being picked up. And that will, I think, inform us. But I think at this time, we have something available that we can use and that informs the pathways that that are needed uh, moving forward. I agree with that. I don't want to endorse one other thing that Zobair was talking about, and Michelle as well, which is that if the NCQA and HEDIS in the U.S. at least don't make this something that has to happen, it isn't going to happen. You know, um, back in B school, back in the 18th century, they taught me that people do what's inspected, not what's expected. And right now, the, the net result of the quality metrics is it decides what people do. So I hit an age barrier in my life where my uh, GP, who'd been seeing me for 10 years, immediately said, you know, I think you need to see a cardiologist. And the reason was because on a scan for an extraneous reason seven years ago, the radiologist had seen some sign of cardiovascular plaque. I went to the cardiologist. The plaque was literally a pinprick on, on my artery. And I could... Uh, hit a Concept 2 rowing machine uh, for 5K two minutes faster than he could, and I'm 20 years older than he is. But my guy, my primary care guy, got his checked box because he saw something that said coronary plaque, and he sent me to cardiologist. That, Zobear, is, I think, what you're talking about when you said we can only get primary care to do so much. Yeah. But that's exactly right. Turn Fib 4 into the hit a bar, get a pellet. Make Fib 4 the, for the bar. Make the quality measure the pellet, and then know where to send people, and that sounds about right. Exactly. I mean, if we can convince them, and I think we have now the the, the evidence portfolio. This is all about evidence and and convincing primary care. The task force for a lot of these things in the United States for for primary care physician is USPTF task force, and they require a lot of evidence to support whether you do screening for hepatitis C or whatever you want to do. And I think we have now generated a lot of evidence that FIB4 may not be perfect, but it is actually a great and initial test to be done. And once you take the portfolio and start talking about this to them, we could get that. I I mentioned this previously, they need to sort of think about this, that this is another complication of diabetes, that you have no problem doing a creatinine check for a kidney problem in diabetics. Why would you have a problem with actually liver disease check? And that could be done through a FIB4 for another complication. And once we get them there, then I think it's going to be easier to convince, say, my administration, the administrators in our health system to then put the resources in the EPIC, which is what we use, electronic health record. And I'm not sure, Michelle, maybe you use the same 
thing and then to have red flags and but red that's not enough there has to be a way to then you follow that red flag to make sure that those patients that should be referred are referred and if they are not then that's the quality indicator that could have financial implication and I'm sure it's going to have medical legal sort of implication for some folks in the United States but that's how you change practice. I completely agree. I think taking it back to Dr. Thiel's paper as well, it, perhaps just recognizing that this is a disease by having this FIB4 calculated, that in and of itself could be doing a lot of good and people, it may alter people's behavior if they say, okay, now my behaviors are impacting my liver health. Just because the FIB4 obviously is not perfect, I think we still need a lot of research and to try to figure out something that's even better. But just because it's not perfect doesn't mean we shouldn't start now because right now what we're seeing in clinic is, is a total mess. And like Louise was saying earlier, we're seeing a lot of referrals that could otherwise be screened out and it makes it harder for people that actually need to come in and see subspecialty care to actually get that care. Those are all things that we need to consider here. Um, the other thing that has come up a few times in the meeting so far are, uh, again, the trajectories of FIB4. And I would love to see novel ways of actually putting that into practice using the EHR because there's been some interesting papers that have shown that even coming out confirming some data at this meeting, looking at trajectories of FIB4 and how that relates to outcomes. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with our final ILC 22 wrap-up, Scott Friedman and Neil Henderson discussing some of the basic science issues from the meeting. Please join us for all that. Until then, stay safe and surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.